Uh, you might like to find the first passage in your Bible, and it is in Ezekiel chapter 26. Uh, those of you who don't know me very well probably don't know that I was an atheist for 10 years, from age 7 to 17. I'm fairly active as an atheist, so when I became a Christian, I needed to find answers to all the old arguments I used to come up with as an atheist. And one of them is the Old Testament. And sadly, a lot of Christians aren't very familiar with it. But in fact, the strongest from an arguing ground from an intellectual perspective for the gospel is the Old Testament. <coughs> and um, it is an amazing book. It is the only book in the world which is seen as an inspired book by three world religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all agree that the Old Testament is from God. And that is two-thirds of the world population. <coughs> Ezekiel is pretty amazing. He lived in uh, Judah. And at the time <coughs> when Babylon was just coming to power, the ancient world, there were three world powers. The first one was the egg, the second one was the ass, and the third one was the baby. The egg is Egypt, wonderful. The ass is Assyria, Assyria. and the baby is? Okay, that was the order in which they became world power. Israel and Judah are between those three, and so they were caught in the middle of all kinds of strife. At uh, Ezekiel's time, the ruling power was Assyria, and it was just giving way to Babylon. And those two were in major conflict. So let us read a bit from Ezekiel 26. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha! The gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre. And I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. She'll become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
From the north, I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword, and he will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against you, your walls, and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many, they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. The hooves of his horses will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishing nets. You will never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. That is a very specific prophecy. All kinds of exact details spelled out. And we're told exactly when it happened, the 11th year, that is, the year 585 B.C. <clears throat> it was a surprising prophecy because the city of Tyre had never been captured. Geographically, <clears throat> it, it's uh, modern-day Phoenicia or biblical uh, Philistine, Philistia, and it was a peninsula, quite a long, thin peninsula with steep, rocky walls, and uh, all they had to do was defend one wall. And there was a lot of land enclosed on that peninsula, <clears throat> but if they could defend that one wall, they had flocks and herds, and there were springs of water there, and they could survive indefinitely and uh, nobody could climb up the, the city walls. So it seemed impossible, but just two years after the prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar came with his army. You would expect him to come from the southeast, because that's where Babylon was, but they actually came down from the north, as it says here, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar brought his army, a very powerful army with siege equipment of a type that had never been known. They battered down that, that wall and they broke in, <clears throat> conquered the city. That's just the beginning of the fulfillment of all these prophecies. Once that had happened, that wall was gone and the city was exposed to all kinds of little bandit tribes from the desert and they came in you get the next bit I will bring many nations against you like waves of the sea one after the other and that happened for the next 240 years 
and they never managed to rebuild the wall because every time they began to do it, another tribe would come and knock it down again. <clears throat> but by this time, the wealthier merchants of the city developed a very clever strategy. They cut steps down the cliffs in one place, and there was an island about half a mile across. <clears throat> and they, as soon as the trumpets warned of a raiding party, the merchants would grab whatever was valuable, mainly jewelry and gold and stuff, and they would scramble down the steps into boats they kept at the bottom of the cliff and go over to the island, which was also very rocky and there were steep cliffs there, and they were safe. And they got it down to a fine art over 200 years. And so when a raiding party came up, they'd come as far as the cliff tops of the mainland They'd see these guys going over in the little boats and they'd say, yeah! <laughs> and, and they got quite used to that. Until we come down, <clears throat> as I say, another 230 years, to the time of Alexander the Great. And he was in the process of world conquest and he was a very determined individual and he had something that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have, and none of the bandit tribe had, and that was a navy. <clears throat> and so legend has it that Alexander came on a big white stallion and sat on his stallion on the cliff stock, seeing these little boats going across, and the guy is mocking him, and he got really angry, and he ordered his navy to take the island. And they came four times without any success. They weren't able to establish a landing on the island at all. <clears throat> and the fifth time, again, they were repulsed. So Alexander, being a very determined type, said, dismantle the city and get all the biggest stones roll them down into the ocean, and they built two columns of major stones the half mile across the island. And then they took all the timbers from the roof trusses and put them in a lattice between the two columns of stone, and then they took all the rubble and dust on the shields of the troop and came down and filled in the gaps until they had a causeway right across to the island and they captured it. I will put your stones, timber, and rubble into the midst of the sea and I will make you a bare rock. And that was all that was left of the city was rock foundations. If you were to go there now, and I have been there, you will see what remains of the two columns of stone. The timber and rubble is long since gone, but the, the main causeway is still there. And if you were to go in the evening, you would see 
the local fishing fleet hanging up their nets on what used to be the, the homes of the city of Tyre. And they dry them out overnight, and then they go fishing the next morning. But the next bit of the prophecy says it will never be rebuilt, and it never has been. <coughs> a, a math professor, in having a very skeptical class, uh, suggested that they would work out the possibility of somebody predicting all that <laughs> without uh, you know, actually any real knowledge <clears throat> and getting every detail right. And what the class came up with, and they were skeptics and they were mathematicians, was one possibility in 136,000 that he would be able to predict this and get it right. That's one of the reasons why I would say the Old Testament is a pretty amazing book. <clears throat> and now I want to look at Joshua. Chapter 5 and verse 13, eventually. <clears throat> the Old Testament is an amazing book, but it is a book about Jesus. It is written over a period of at least 1,300 years, and some of it goes back 2,000 years, really, to Abraham although we don't have what was written then. <clears throat> written in different places by different men in different languages <clears throat> and has 39 books, but it has one theme all the way through, and that is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and just every single book is about Jesus. And there are two particularly uh, rehearsed ceremonies that they, the Jews observe. One is the Passover. <clears throat> they were slaves in Egypt, a very powerful country, the most powerful <coughs> and the most wealthy the world had ever seen by that time. <clears throat> Three million of them were slaves, <clears throat> and God was about to rescue them from Egypt. On the night before they left, every Jewish family had to take a lamb, and they had to kill it and drain off its blood, and they were to use the blood to make, to mark their homes and they were to mark the lintel above the door and the doorposts on either side. In other words, they were to make the sign of the cross in the blood of a perfect lamb. And the lamb had to be perfect with no defects. It doesn't take a genius to work out what that predicts, does it? <laughs> and they were to rehearse that every year, 1,300 years, until Jesus came and was pointed out by John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, 
Behold the Lamb of God. <clears throat> Every home not so marked with the blood of the cross is visited by death. But every home with that marking on the outside, the destroying angel passed over and judgment did not visit that house. <clears throat> and the uh, language is very beautiful, very clear. The death of Christ is one of the major themes running right through the Old Testament. The other one is the land of Canaan. As slaves, they own nothing, not even the hovels they were given to live in. And when they left Egypt, they need to go somewhere. And God had been preparing the ideal place for them. And they were just to walk in and take it. They didn't really have to fight for it much. God just gave it to them. But everything was already there. The farms were there. The vineyards were there. The roads were there. The buildings were there. The towns and villages. Everything prepared for them. And there were giants there because they sent in spies to check out the territory. And when they saw the giants, they felt a bit scared. <laughs> we can't fight them. <coughs> but see, if uh, diesel engines weren't available and Caterpillar weren't doing very well in those days, if they weren't available, giants were the next best thing to get the buildings done. And so God had all this ready for them, for them just to walk into it. And he gives uh, several descriptions of the land. But the fullest one is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where he talks about it being a land of wheat, barley, vines, pomegranates, fig trees. Everything you need for food. Springs of water, gold, silver, precious stones, iron, copper. Everything you need to make tools and weapons and trade. Gold, silver, precious stones. And then he says this, in it you will lack nothing. God's preparations for them and provision for them was complete. And he said, you will lack nothing in that. And so the land of Canaan is the second uh, major truth running right through the Old Testament. Sometimes they were in it and enjoyed it, and sometimes they were driven out of it, and they suffered. That equates to Jesus Christ. Peter says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. In other words, when you've got Jesus, you've got everything. Everything that God is. Yeah. <clears throat> I might tell you a little story about this if my wife will forgive me. She's 
had it a time or two. <laughs> we uh, came, we'd been missionaries in South America, <clears throat> and we came back to Britain in 1968 and began work at Cavalry Hall, the home of Torchbearers, which is a Bible school in the winter and the youth conferences the rest of the year. <clears throat> and the, the organization had grown a bit, so there wasn't just the castle in England where it all began, but there were two or three properties in Europe, and now there are 28 in 23 countries. <clears throat> but one of them was in Austria. And at the end of the Bible school year, I happened to be teaching there, and there was a group going from London across to Austria. And I was to take them. I was to pick up the group in London, take them over to Austria, teach them for two weeks, bring them back to London, let them go home. But there were also three Americans who had been in the Bible school and they wanted to be part of this Austrian holiday, so they came as well. Two guys and a girl called Mary Jane. Mary Jane was from Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> and Daddy had loads of money. He had nine servants in the house, including a butler. And so Mary Jane came on this holiday, fine. They had two weeks in Austria, great time. We all got on the bus to bring a coach to bring us from Austria to the coast of Belgium, where we were to get ferry across to England, to a little town called Dover, where we were to get a train into London. Great. We all got on the bus, we all got on the ferry, we all got off the ferry, we got on the train, with one ticket for all of us. <coughs> when became apparent we were three short, three Americans. <clears throat> so I went, I left the group on the train with the ticket, went back into the customs shed because uh, when you arrive in the customs hall, we British are so nice, this one says British citizens and this one says Aliens. <laughs> so the Americans were aliens, apparently. And I came in the back and found the two guys already gone through. They were standing there. But Mary Jane had nine suitcases. <laughs> she was 18 years old, and the British customs officials would not believe that an 18-year-old girl had nine suitcases of personal effects. Mm. So they were going through everything, everything, and she was highly embarrassed. Wow. <clears throat> and I managed to persuade them she was all right. <clears throat> Eventually they let her go and we came out onto the platform in time to see the train disappear. Oh. 
and none of us had much in the way of money. I hardly anything. <coughs> and the boys had uh, just about spent everything they had. <coughs> Mary Jane always expected other people to have the money she never took in. <coughs> and so I wondered what to do with these things. And the two guys kept saying, well, we're hitchhiking. Mary Jane had not been brought up to consider hitchhiking <laughs> often. So we kept discussing this. Finally, the guy said, well, you do what you want. We're going. And they set up to hitchhike. So I'm wondering what to do. There isn't another train. <coughs> I have very little money. And even if I had, there wasn't a rental car available. And in the end, she thought about hitchhiking. And she said, well... All right, I'll do it, but I'm only doing it if I can go with you. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so I spent what bit of money we had on a taxi to take us to the road out of Dover, which led to London. And the taxi dropped us there, and we were going to try and hitch a ride. And the first car that came was a subcompact. <laughs> <laughs> Without thinking, I <laughs> that. And he was braking and turning in when he saw that the pile of luggage was actually bigger than his car. <laughs> and so he drove off again. He was laughing so hard. He almost, <laughs> almost had an accident. And the private hire limousine glided to a stop. And the gentleman in the chauffeur's uniform and peak cap came over and said, Did you wish to go to London, sir? <laughs> and I said, Yeah, we need to go to London, but I'm sorry, there's absolutely no way I can afford you. He said, No problem, sir. I've just taken my passengers to the boat. They've gone, paid me well. I have to go anyway. You're welcome to ride with me. And this cavernous trunk swallowed all ten suitcases. <laughs> Mary Jane and I sat in the back seat with about four feet between us, the last panel between us and the chauffeur, and drove off past the train we'd missed. <laughs> and Mary Jane piped up from her seat in the corner. She said, Say, I learned something this holiday. Well, that's good. <laughs> she said, when you got Christ, man, you got everything. Oh. I said, that was exactly the theme of the whole two weeks. <laughs> and finally, she's got it. <clears throat> when you've got Christ, you've got everything. All the wisdom you'll ever need, all the patience, all the love, all the power. All the resources you'll ever need. If you've got Christ, you've got everything. And you become a Christian by painting the cross. You accept that over your life. And God says, I will pass over you. I will remember your sins no more. <laughs> but you don't just do that. You accept the living Christ into you so that you have everything that it takes for all the rest of your life to be the Christian you're supposed to be.
So that brings us now to Joshua. And I'm not used to talking. Can you still hear? Absolutely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Joshua, chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. So here's the story then. They've got out of Egypt. They spent 40 days in the desert. Moses and Aaron have just died. Three million, three million people are on the edge of the promised land. All the future that God has in store for them. All the fields and farms and vineyards, etc. All there, just, just ahead. There's this one obstacle, the city of Jericho. And they have been expecting the Israelites to arrive for quite a while. They're armed, they're provisioned, there are, gate, there are walls around the city were so thick there are houses built on them <coughs> and it looks impregnable. And Joshua is their new leader, brand new in the job, and he is wondering how on earth are we going to cope with this city? we have no experience of this kind of warfare. And so he is uh, examining the city, checking it out, wondering what we're we going to do. And then he sees what appears to him to be a man with a drawn sword in his hand. This is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And it's a Jesus ready for battle. He's got a sword in his hand. Kind of exciting picture. And <clears throat> Joshua doesn't recognize him. So he marches up to him and says, Hey, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? Kind of interesting technique. If it'd been on the other side, it might. He <laughs> uh, might have used the sword first and then said, I'm on the other side. But <clears throat> The answer is interesting. He swaggers up to Jesus and says, Whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? And Jesus says, No. <laughs> and it's really important to grasp this. 
occasionally you'll have people tell you Jesus is on your side. He isn't. Are you on our side or theirs? No. I'm commander of the armies of God. Whose side are you on? That you can be on his side. He's never going to be on your side. The, the question is, who's, who is serving who? And sometimes Christians get the idea that it's God's business to serve us. No. <laughs> the other way around. <clears throat> so now Joshua asks the question that's puzzling him and the conversation is really a bit like this. Oh, am I relieved to see you? Your commander of the Lord's army is great. So what's your strategy for capturing Jericho then? We've thought of lots of things. We thought of uh, getting some long branches and making them into poles for pole vaulting and training like Olympic athletes running up to the walls of the city and vaulting over the walls. And we'd also thought, well, we could use big chunks of the tree trunks and 10 or 12 of us could pick up one of those, run at the city and pound the gates uh, until we batter our way inside. The only trouble is they cut down all the trees and have less design. It's really unfair. <laughs> and, and then we thought maybe we could study mining and drill tunnels under the walls, but this sandy ground doesn't lend itself to tunnel building, and again there's no wood to reinforce the tunnels. <clears throat> and then we thought, well, we could all take off our underwear <laughs> and, and make a, a, a long chain of it tight between two big rocks and put a guy in the middle and pull him back as far as we could. They're not going to invent elastic for another 3,000 years. <laughs> and what follows is the strategy of Jesus for how you take Jericho. And here it is. Take off your shoes. How on earth do you conquer a city by taking your shoes off? Well, the answer really lies in the socks, you see. You buy nylon socks and, and put them on with rubber boots and keep them on in the hot weather day and night for two weeks. Then you go upwind of the city, <laughs> take the boots off, and they'll all come out throwing their weapons. I surrender! <laughs> no, actually, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, God has said to him, every place that the sole of your foot treads on, I've given you. And the person who stood barefoot was a slave, in the presence of his master. Mm -hmm. And what God is saying is just this. Joshua, you're not the commander. I am. And we just need to get this clear now. I'm the Lord. You're the slave. And of course that reverses 
the initial disaster that you get in Scripture. When Adam and Eve were to live in obedience to God, but if they didn't, didn't want to, they could symbolize it by disobeying and eating the forbidden fruit. And when they did that, they stepped out from the kingdom of God into the empire of Satan. The kingdom of God means God is king and everybody else does as they're told. The empire of Satan runs on this principle, leads us up. Do what you want. And they abandoned the kingdom of God, joined the empire of Satan. If you really want to experience what God has for you, you've got to reverse that, step back, and put yourself under the authority of God, which is called repentance. And so on the day of Pentecost, these, uh, Peter will say, repent. And you will receive the gift of God. So, God's deal is this total forgiveness and total provision for everything you're ever going to need in the person of a living Christ. But if you're serious that that's what you want, take your shoes off. And for Joshua, it's probably difficult because he was a brand new general. He'd been number two in command for 40 years, now he's number one. And he probably was imagining the uniform he'd get designed for himself. And looking like a slave didn't appeal all that much. But that's the condition. If you want to know why Jesus came, if you want to enjoy the kingdom of God, and eventually heaven, take your shoes off. Otherwise, forget it. Head back into the desert, try and get excited about manna for the rest of your life. <laughs> <coughs> Thanks.